0: And thanks for listening.
2: How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate
1: One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. While progress on energy efficiency has stalled in Congress, many corporations are forging ahead with their own sustainability initiatives to save the planet. Public relations is one motivation, but it's also about saving and making money. Energy and packaging are indicators of waste, and reducing both is just plain good business. Good for shareholders and good for our health and our environment. No company understands this better than Walmart, the world's largest corporation. Edward Humes is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and author of the new book, Force of Nature, the Unlikely Story of Walmart's Green Revolution. For the next hour, we'll discuss sustainable production and consumption with Edward Humes and our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Please welcome Edward Humes. Thank you. Thanks for coming, Um, Let's begin uh, in the early 90s. There's a CEO, David Glass, of Walmart, and things aren't going so well for him. They're not doing so, so uh, well in terms of the public relations. They had a made-in-America scandal. Let's start there and tell us what, what was going on.
2: Well, uh, caveat, things were going well financially for Walmart at that time. The okay. growth was enormously successful because um, people were buying lots of stuff. Uh, but there were some image issues that began and the Made in America scandal was, it, it, it refers to a program that Walmart had adopted, uh, to uh, emphasize the America-made aspect of products they were selling. And, um, uh, a news program, Dateline, uh, went in and, uh, did an expose that showed that Uh, the big signs were showing made in America, but the the little tiny labels were saying made uh, uh, Thailand or Malaysia or somewhere that not, definitely not uh, uh, domestic. And then they traveled to the um, uh, source of some of these uh, uh, articles of clothing and found child labor and sweatshop conditions. And obviously it caused a bit of a scandal. And the... Company responded in quite a flat-footed way too, and worsened the the public relations problem. Um, uh, I, it was sort of like a a, a Clinton esque moment uh, where you're parsing words a little too much. And, and David Glass said something to the effect of, "Well, child labor maybe it depends on how you define child, you know." and Not yeah. the thing to say. Yeah, <laughs> a lot on television for sure.
1: And then his successor comes in, Lee Scott becomes CEO of Walmart in 2000. And things, the stock is down quite a bit in the first few years of Lee Scott's tenure as Walmart. And McKinsey says to him, You got to do something big, you got to regain public trust. So let's pick it up there.
2: Well, there, there was an internal study, and it, it suggested that there was between. Uh, Customs raiding stores and arresting undocumented janitorial workers, and Kathy Lee Crosby's line of clothing was also linked to sweatshop uh, conditions. And it was one thing after the gender hiring issues, that's now before the Supreme Court. You know, go back many years, and that was bubbling to the surface. So there was a lot of uh, reputational challenges for Walmart at that point, and uh, an internal study suggested as many as eight percent of their customers were so concerned about their reputation that they were going to shop elsewhere. Well, 8% of a company that gets 100 million-plus customers a week is the difference between a good year and a really bad year. So they wanted to do something. And so they spent a lot of money on a study that said, well, if you want to be perceived as good, go do something good. I wish I was that consultant, you know. It's like, uh, I, I, but um, they were searching around for something good. Uh, and uh, it was at this time that a fellow um, who, who works here in San Francisco and lives up in the Healdsburg area, Jib Ellison, came along and suggested something good that Walmart could do would be to become more sustainable. Yeah.
1: So the, the, the time was ripe. The, they had these consultants say, do something good. Uh, Lee Scott was looking for something big to do to kind of take the, the spotlight off these other issues. And he meets with Jib Ellison, which is kind of an unlikely meeting and an unlikely connection. How did that come about, and what was the consequence? How did that get the ball rolling?
2: Well, I guess a little bit about uh, Jib Ellison. He's a, he he was a river guide, a whitewater rafting expert. You know, I think a Paddler magazine called him Paddler of the Century. You know, so he's a pretty elite uh, person in, the, in that um, Field of athletic and outdoor endeavor, and is a real nature guy. And um, he had started a nonprofit as a young man, and um, the, the purpose of that nonprofit called Project Raft was to bring Soviets and Americans together on wild rivers and have them bond as a kind of Cold War citizen diplomacy. Uh, activity, and, and it garnered considerable attention. It was quite successful, and they did, you know, the first Westerners being allowed to, to raft through Siberia and the Khatun River, and then they came and did it in, in the U.S., and um, he did that for a number of years and learned a lot about uh, bringing uh, pe- diverse groups of people together and having them embrace unusual ideas, unusual for them. Uh, and that skill apparently translated quite well into his next endeavor, which was to go into business as a business consultant. Um, no particular environmental component of that consultancy, but he had a number of partners based here in San Francisco, quite successful, big-name clients. Uh, eventually, he proposed to his partners that they do put an environmental component into their work, that now we're in the early 2000s. He says, you know, this is a big opportunity, sustainability. Uh, our businesses should be... Be centering their efforts around that. His partners weren't too interested at that point, so he struck out on his own. And his first client, he wrangled a meeting through connections he had um, from from his previous life with Lee Scott, then the CEO of Walmart, and um, proposed what was then a very uh, uh, unlikely idea for Walmart to consider adopting, which was that you can stop looking at environmental good as a cost and a burden and a risky thing to undertake or philanthropy or some other kind of social responsibility activity and start considering it as a as a way to make your business better because all the things you're doing are riddled with waste wasted energy uh, waste going to the landfill inefficiencies that you're not thinking about because you don't You aren't looking at it through the right lens, through this idea that lowering your footprint and lowering your impact on the world can be good for your business, not a negative for your business. And basically, they said, "Well, prove it. Let's see. Let's see if that's true." Uh, and there were
1: some early successes. There were the auxiliary power units on the trucks, where trucks used to idle, and they re- realized that hey, we can put these basically batteries on trucks that can run them. Little little ge-
2: little generator. auxiliary generators. Right. So you can shut down the big engines and and consume a lot less fossil fuel, uh, and still keep the critical systems in the in the trucks running. And uh, that saved. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars with a 7,000 truck fleet. That they just, you know. Uh, the one that I like is the toy truck. And instead of the big trucks, the toy truck, they, uh, you know, they sell these little plastic toys by the million, toddler truck. Um, and they said, well, let's try reducing the packaging on that. That's a good thing to do. It'll save trees. And it did. Because they sell so many of this things. it saved 4,000 trees. Uh, that doesn't do a lot for Walmart, but it's a good thing. What did do something for Walmart is that when you make a package smaller, you can fit more of them In a container, right? And in this case, there was 497 fewer cargo containers being shipped uh, into the port of Los Angeles uh, than there were in the previous year when the package was bigger. And the fuel savings for that and the material savings amounted to $2.5 bucks from one product. For Walmart, is that a lot of money? Well, yeah, it is because they'd have to sell $60 million worth of those toys to make that $2.5 million. So that was an early proof of concept that doing something that was actually lowering their footprint and uh, more sustainable baby steps obviously uh, had a big return it, w- it was it was a no-brainer for them and that was just from one product well what if we go across all of our products and start looking for those kinds of opportunities and it began to snowball and it stopped being this iffy proposition that some some river guide came up with and started being uh, more of a uh, a no-brainer business proposition. There's another one where
1: uh, some computers are rolling off an assembly line, and some of the computers are made to European specifications, which allow fewer or no toxic ingredients, and the other computers are destined for the U.S., where we have looser standards, and there's more toxic uh, ingredients in these computers. And the Walmart person says... Can we have that one, the yeah, well,
2: one? Two assembly lines making the same computer, one non-toxic and one toxic, They're running, because why can't we have the good ones? You never asked. <laughs> and and what if we combine those lines? Well, it becomes somewhat cheaper to make the computers because one line is more cost-effective than two.
1: And the it, price it, was crazy. the same,
2: right? The price was the same of both yeah. computers.
1: Uh, so, again, a, a no-brainer. Another one is cotton shirts and, and uh, just r- helping them realize how much – how many chemicals go into producing the cotton that, that uh, results in, in one shirt that we wear. And I think there's one point where someone th-
2: throws down a – Yeah, an executive – remember the executive team at, at Walmart had, uh, you know, they were talking about wa- – with with board members, why should Walmart, and this was early on, get involved in this this green stuff? I mean, what's, what's in it for us? Where's, where's the shareholder value for this? And uh, – and this executive, Lawrence Jackson, pulls out this baggie about this big and throws it on the table. It's got some kind of powder in it and a big thump on the table and uh, and says, well, that white shirt you're wearing, that's how much pesticide went into manufacturing your, your, your shirt, one shirt. Um, do you really want to wear that? And the guy is like, you know, it really was just like colored sand or something. It wasn't really pesticide. But uh, it was a very uh, visceral kind of demonstration that, you don't really think about it in those graphic terms. You see a white shirt, it looks clean, it looks pure, and really it it was produced, immersed in impurities and and poisonous impurities. And um, this was when they were trying to ramp up a a play to become a purveyor of more organic cotton fabrics and, and actually making deals with farmers to ramp up the production of organic cotton and providing some financial support for that, which was something they had never done before. Because it takes three years for a farmer to be – To transition from conventional to organic. And
1: Walmart said, we'll buy your product across that bridge. But a lot of farmers can't uh, go across that three-year bridge not knowing, is someone going to buy your product and pay the cost? So Walmart said, we'll carry you across that bridge to the other side right. and provide you certainty of a supply, which is a very significant thing. Uh, 2005, uh, Lee Scott gives a big speech, and this is a a seminal moment in the the greening of Walmart. I read the speech years ago. But tell us about the speech and and the impact that that speech had in 2005.
2: Well, I guess this was uh, really kind of a pivotal time because, all right, they had this, this idea that they could do something positive in the environment to improve their image. And then in the... Space of the next year, Hurricane Katrina occurred, and uh, Walmart became engaged in some very laudatory, uh, uh, charity, I guess you could call it relief work, in which they provided food and water and medicines to the stricken citizens of, of uh, Louisiana and Mississippi, and they and they did a lot of really good things, and and it was it was at a time when. Uh, the, the then uh, White House administration had really gutted FEMA, and it was FEMA had become feeble, and whereas it had been much more capable in the past, and so Walmart seemed, in comparison, to be very efficient, effective, which was a, you know, evoked a lot of a lot of uh, good feelings in some quarters about the company, and, and many quarters, and they deserved to be uh, to, to be lauded for their charitable work. And their reputation. The upshot is their reputation improved greatly, and suddenly, and Lee Scott talked about this in the speech. Suddenly, after being pilloried in the press, they were being, you know, lauded, and that was a new experience for him. He had kind of gotten weary about uh, reading uh, about what people had to say about Walmart in the press. So now there's a, a turning point. Well, our reputation is much better, and we're not worried about customers leaving us because we're, we're perceived as a negative. Um, do we need to continue with this whole sustainability thing? It's kind of mission accomplished moment. We we could uh, write that off as a nice experiment and get back to business as usual. And they did not do that because the proof of concept had been had been made that there was a business case for sustainability that made sense for them not just to continue but to actually ramp up even more. Um, uh, and and. The speech was about why they wanted to do that, and it was a speech given to the thousands of of Walmart employees around the world. But it also was a public statement. And uh, at first, the CEO of Walmart was talking about all the wonderful things they did to Katrina and, uh, for, during Katrina, and it was a feel-good moment. And then all of a sudden, he veers off, and people are sort of taken aback within Walmart because he. Uh, began talking about how the environment was Hurricane Katrina in slow motion, and how um, he wanted his company to be the, the Walmart of Hurricane Katrina all the time, and apply that to uh, to environmental concerns. And it was uh, that's, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not by any means a radical speech, but for for this this particular company to be putting that out there uh, and and stating along with it aspirational goals to try and become a zero-waste company and to lower their carbon footprint in significant ways uh, and to commit to that course uh, of action over the next decade was, was pretty remarkable.
1: And this was before An Inconvenient Truth, uh, before... It was, this was, it was a
2: year before...
1: An Inconvenient Truth, so a lot of the greening that's happened, a lot of, subsequently, a lot of corporate CEOs have hopped on that bandwagon. But in 2005, before Al Gore's movie... Uh, this was a pretty. This was. A, you know, we have to remember the context of this happening. Uh, this was a pretty bold move. Well, there was time. a lot
2: of scratching about this at, at the mo- at that time, and the goals were these aspirational goals of being zero waste were so far out from where Walmart was at the time that it, it sounded like happy talk or greenwashing, and there was a lot of skepticism about it inside and outside the company. Uh, but that this kind of uh, feverish interest in uh, sustainability within the company uh, picked up to such a point that a year later, Al Gore came, was invited to speak in, in the in the Sam Walton Arena there at Walmart headquarters and uh, uh, did a screening of An Inconvenient Truth and got a standing ovation, you know, in this place that you know, didn't vote for him when he ran for president. and. All of a sudden, there's people watching this film and, you know, tearing up and giving him a, a, an unexpectedly uh, uh, warm welcome. Uh, and I, I attribute that to, to the sort of embrace of this this sustainability uh, idea that had previously been completely foreign to, to this company.
1: There had been previous moments where there was little sort of mini springs of environmental awareness at Walmart. You say that when... Uh, Hillary Clinton was on the board of Walmart, former First Lady of Arkansas. Uh, that they had a, a little brief awakening, but then after she left, went back to business as usual?
2: Yeah, they had tried a few um, things with recycling and with uh, packaging, actually. And the, the, big, the big thing that happened back then was um, I don't know if you remember this, but when you bought deodorant at the supermarket, it used to come, it would be in a can or a plastic thing, and that would be inside a box a cardboard box, which was flimsier than the actual container of the deodorant. So somebody said, why do we have to have the box? So they got rid of, they said, deodorant makers, no more box. And, you know, oof, the, the box was gone. And all those packaging costs and waste was eliminated. But it wasn't perceived then as an environmental move, but just as a cost-saving and a way to put more stuff on the shelf, you know, because you could fit more on the shelf. Now, it's interesting uh, they're in Europe, in the UK, um, they have a chain of stores, ASDA. ASDA, and um, they are sell- now beginning to sell toothpaste without the box. I mean, why do we need a box for toothpaste, too? Right? Apparently, that's too radical for us here in America. But uh, someday, the boxless toothpaste may come come here. But again, it cuts the packaging footprint and the packaging cost by fifty percent if you get rid of that stupid box. Uh, and, and it's the kind of things that are so obvious when you say it. But, I mean, did you ever think about that toothpaste box before? I never did until until it was gone from a product. And, and it's hard to see that stuff. And that's part of the sustainability uh, uh, lens that, uh, uh, you not know, all that Jim Ellison persuaded Walmart to, to put on.
1: Ed- Edward Humes is author of Force of Nature: The Unlikely Story of Walmart's Green Revolution. He's our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about some other specific industries. Uh, you write about seafood that they've had some tough time there with seafood and actually called for more regulation. And exactly what is sustainable? Uh, you know, how have they done on Walmart done on on getting seafood that is really sustainable?
2: Well, uh, there's been some progress um, and some things that have been challenging not just for Walmart but for for the industry in general particularly the farmed seafood Um, uh, there's several organizations are using that certify it but questions about how rigorous the standards are so that uh, I think they've done better with wild caught seafood but there's been some issues there too to it's hard to blame Walmart entirely for this because we have these perverse economic incentives that somehow make it make sense for a business to catch fish, a wild Alaskan salmon, freeze it, ship it to China, process it and cut it and package it and refreeze it there and send it back for stores here in the U.S. I mean, it's completely insane. And it's not unique to Walmart. But how do these Perverse incentive, economic extent, uh, incentives exist, and how do you overcome them? Uh, has been a very difficult challenge for all sorts of companies—Walmart and Costco and Target and, and all these other big boxes that that sell seafood.
1: Well, a lot of it's predicated on cheap oil. On that transportation, without uh, low transportation costs, the economics of that don't don't work quite as well. Uh, another one is that you write about cow of the f- cows of the future. In the dairy industry, and this gets into the area where, area where Walmart's tried to affect whole industries. Cows are a huge source of greenhouse gases.
2: Well, actually, this is, I, I think this is the real importance of the story because it sounds like we're up here singing Walmart's praises, and this isn't, about, this isn't a chorus of Walmart is, is fabulous. It's a very specific um, change in the way they've decided to do business, which is to try and be more sustainable because it makes economic sense to do that. And that idea has really – they made it safe for other companies to have the same conversation about sustainability because they've shown maybe it's not so risky, crazy out there after all. Uh, And and I think there are a large reason why sustainability is even a word that that big businesses talk about now. But early on, one of the industries that uh, became enthusiastic about their (laughs) – desire to have their supply chain, you know, which is the world of business, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, become more sustainable. Dairy, the dairy people really responded to that and said, you know, this is what we are looking for um, because milk is kind of this the, the boring white bottles on the shelf that uh, is losing uh, uh Customers to soda and juices that are perceived as healthy, even when they're not. Um, And uh, they wanted to restore the luster to dairy as a source of health and of goodness and and sustainable farming. And and they saw this push to be more sustainable that Walmart was asking them to undertake as a real opportunity for their businesses. And so this cow of the future that you're referring to is an attempt to um, uh, eliminate some of the greenhouse gas footprint of cows apparently cow burps are a big a big uh, source of and it is burps of, of greenhouse gases uh, as is their manure when it's not when, when it's allowed to collect in, in these these massive ponds that huge dairy operations have so they're looking at uh, using that for energy generation uh, or um uh, coming up with a, a cow breed that may be less gassy, uh, feeds that lower the production of methane by uh, cows, and a whole series of initiatives um, that also carry some economic benefits for dairy farmers. And dairy is a
1: $100 billion business, 10% of farm sales, so there's a big business here, big part of the greenhouse gas equation. And Walmart, well, they asked suppliers to not use growth hormone, growth hormone, right, which is a huge deal, changed that industry overnight. Uh, and there's a very memorable scene in Food, Inc., for people who saw that movie, where people from Walmart show up, and they're being welcomed by longtime organic activist Gary Hirschberg, right, uh, from Stonyfield Farm. So, um, But you mentioned greenwashing earlier. Do you think Walmart engages in greenwashing?
2: is Walmart engaging in greenwashing. Well, if greenwashing is defined as basically falsely claiming to be um, doing an environmental good when you're not, I think they've been pretty careful about saying that they're not a green company and and they never will be a green company. They'll never be I mean they're they're an outsourced big box retailer that wants you to buy ever more amounts of stuff. They're not going to be sustainable. Then the question was, well, if if they're driving 60 miles an hour towards oblivion and they slow the car down to 20 miles an hour, is that a good thing? I think it is. Um, And so they've been careful to frame their their claims uh, about that they're being greener, they're being more sustainable, but that doesn't make them a sustainable enterprise. They're not a seventh generation or a a Patagonia, but they are trying to be better. So does that have value? You know, do you have to slow the Titanic down before you turn it around? I think you do. So, um, and the fact that it's Walmart saying this, that's the other part of the story. It's not Al Gore saying sustainability is good for the economy. It's it's the Red, red state company there is saying it, and it's an exact counterpoint to much of the rhetoric coming out of Washington about Green being a job killer and a and a drag on the economy. I mean, if you look at Walmart's example, it's exactly the opposite. And, in fact, they've increased their investment in sustainability during the tough economy, tough economic times. Uh, You know, actions speak pretty loudly on that. Why is
1: that? That's counterintuitive. When times are tough, people usually tighten belts and, oh, we can't afford these things.
2: Sustainability is about tightening your belt. It's about using less energy. It's about using less fossil fuels. It's about finding alternative ways to do things that are more efficient. Uh, to, it you know, putting skylights in your stores, I mean, what a no-brainer. Uh, Solar on the roof. Yeah, well, that's a little tougher because the return on that investment is much more drawn out. So they're doing it selectively. But California, they just uh, produced the data on their waste to landfill in California. They've cut 81% since 2005. Everybody said zero waste. What a joke. You could never do it. And they've, they've cut their waste to a fifth in a five-year period. I don't, I don't know that I could do that. Uh, well, maybe if I had five years and, you know, I really got all my kids back, I could. But uh, it, it, that is epic. And, and they chortle about it because we used to pay, they say, no. a company to haul this stuff away. Now we're making $100 million a year from our materials. It's not waste anymore. It's materials. Uh, and that's, that's huge. Take, you know, they, they did it in California first, and now it's going nationwide. Uh, they've already made some impressive gains, and they're trying to, to ramp it up. Why? Because it makes sense. Sales may be down. That doesn't mean being more sustainable stops making sense. It makes more sense. There's
1: an equation you write about carbon equals energy equals dollars. I guess you could put waste in there, or energy as, as certainly car, carbon or energy be, being a waste. Yeah, people. It's just
2: scary. Carbon reduction, scary. It must have going to cost us a fortune, you know. And they you know, they've gone to Washington and testified that they want cap and trade, that they that, that they want climate. We need a price on carbon because they're not scared by it. They you know, they figure they'll make a lot of money at it.
1: Edward Humes is author of Force of Nature, The Unlikely Story of Walmart's Green Revolution. He's our guest today at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, so what impact has this had on other businesses? You know, uh, large corporation corporate chiefs looking at each other as Lee Scott. Uh, has it raised his profile in the pantheon of corporate chiefs, or is he an outlier? Or do other people quickly try to follow and copy Walmart and say, well, if they're saving money, we can do it too?
2: Well, I think – you know, Walmart emulated other businesses that have gone before them that have mm-hmm. been pioneers in in green, and and learned from them. They they worked with after years of resistance on on the part of the Patagonia company, they've been working with them um, and helping um, with the apparel industry. And there's a, there's a now a, a sustainability uh, coalition of of major apparel companies, sellers and manufacturers, Nike and REI and Marks & Spencer. I think there's 26 different companies that control something like 85% of the apparel business in the world. And they've agreed to embrace the sustainability idea and to be transparent about it. And um, if they succeed... We're going to know exactly what we're buying when we buy it. And, you know, that packet of pesticides, that'll be the least of it when we find out uh, what uh, goes into the, the the clothes on our back or the shoes on our feet. And the hope is that if you do that, it help. if you have the information, which doesn't really exist right now, the origin story of our products is a big black hole in a lot of cases. If we have that information, the makers of apparel or other products, um, the retailers who sell it and then the customers who buy it um, uh, will all be able to use this information to inform their economic decisions, how to make something, how to sell, whether to sell it or not, whether to buy it or not. And sustainability then becomes a, a, a market force. And it doesn't depend on enlightened consumers because they're already using this kind of data earlier in the process to decide what goes on the shelves to decide which uh, materials providers to source from. That's very exciting, but it takes a long time to put those pieces together.
1: And so the vision is that people uh, will be able to walk in a store one day, and they'll either be a barcode scanner or some way. They'll be able to see where this product came from, where the cotton came from in this shirt, what kind of chemicals are in it, how much water was used in making this T-shirt, that Correct. sort of thing. That's immensely complicated and also very controversial because some people don't want that information out there.
2: Well, it's always been a secret stuff. I mean, it's because, and, and companies who, that make things and, and, and products are made up of material sourced from all over the place and from many different sources. And keeping track of that is, is a scary idea because, you know, it's kind of like you know, we don't really want to know. Uh, sort of me, yeah. questions, it uh, bliss, yeah. but uh, and, and this is not a you know a Walmart thing. This is a multi-company, industry-wide kind of effort. The electronics industry, dairy industry, and apparel are kind of out in front of it, but it's it's coming um,
1: because they don't uh, want competitors to know what's in their their secret sauce. Right. So
2: if you have this kind of pre-competitive collab, uh, cooperation is what they're calling it. Um, on sustainability, on toxics, on 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 the on the scoring of material. If you cooperate on that on the front end, then you can have this this score, this index that will uh, inform the, the the decisions by retailers and someday, hopefully, the decisions by of customers. That, uh, the two complicating things are whenever you score something, somebody wins and somebody loses. And if you have all these different companies, some of them competitors and some of them partners together, uh, nobody wants to have the bad score. Everybody wants the good score. So the challenge is having it remain meaningful uh, but, you know, keeping everybody on board. Uh, And that's why it's moving slow. Gathering the data is the least of it.
1: Uh, of course, we have this on, on restaurants in San Francisco and other cities. Where you get an A, B, or C grade, and some people, they still go in the C grade restaurant because they like the food, right, They take the risk. And there's also a question of whether uh, there's lots of nutrition labeling out there, and I think a lot of studies have shown that consumers don't pay a whole lot of attention to nutrition Yeah, labeling. a lot
2: of it is specious anyway, right? That's right.
1: right. Uh, Ed Humes is the author of Force of Nature, The Unlikely Story of Walmart's Green Revolution. We're going to put the microphone out here for the audience questions and, and then invite people on this side to please come around that side, and we'll form a line, and you can come up and ask questions of Mr. Humes. Uh, but before then, I want to ask you about – this stuff is hard. Are there any failures that Walmart has had in trying to roll out these initiatives or internal resistance? Because this is a very – as you noted, know, kind of a happy story of, oh, this was, this was obvious and it was easy. Did they stumble? Was there internal resistance – to uh, the sustainability push that came from the Walmart CEO, uh, I
2: think I, I think it was a, a slow process. I mean, they they consciously constructed um, a series of quick wins that were, were going to be success, guaranteed success, like reducing the package on that toy truck or putting you know, putting that new equipment on their trucks and. And the goal was to get people enthused and, and within the company competing to see who could come up with the next toy truck uh, victory. Um, they had the, the big chicken box thing. And they were get for years, they were getting their chickens in these boxes that, and you've seen them at supermarkets. sure, they were lined with wax to keep the moisture in. And that made sense in 1960 or something. But all the chickens come in plastic bags now inside the wax box. There was no reason to have the wax box. And the problem with the wax box is you can't recycle it. It just goes to the landfill. And with another one of those, well, why didn't we ask before? Because somebody finally thought to call up the supplier of the chickens and said, can we not have these wax boxes? Yeah, sure, you could have the regular kind of box, no problem. Why aren't we getting them? Because you never asked. You said, give us the wax box 20 years ago or whenever it was, and that's what they've been getting ever ever since. That's the way they've always done it. Uh, and so everybody wanted to have the next chicken box right? So, and to compete in the company. They had the former president of the Sierra Club, Adam Werbach, come in and ramp up these personal sustainability projects where the employees of Walmart stores would – he basically trained them about what green is and how to be sustainable in your daily lives, and it was simple stuff: walk instead of drive. It's good for your body, good exercise, and and, and sustainable, and 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 other more complex things. And uh, you know, it's uh, uh, he talks about being criticized by his peers in the environmental community for doing that, and he said, "Well, why wouldn't I want to?" go in and train a million people who have never been exposed to this information and what it is to be green. How could you say no to that if you're an environmental activist? And and so he he went ahead and did it. Uh, And that program is still going on and and, and has recently been revitalized. So that was another way to sort of overcome any of that internal resistance in a place that never really thought of itself as interested in environmental causes. Having the, the line workers, the people in the stores, invested in personal sustainability was was a, 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 an important part of this this evolution.
1: And it makes a lot of sense for Walmart to have healthier employees who are sick less, more energy. They're better ambassadors for sustainability on the floor. It makes sense in a lot of ways for the individuals Absolutely. and the companies. And Adam, who gave his death of environmentalism talk here on this stage, and took a lot of heat for being a sellout. Among his environmentalist friends, will say how hard it was to get some people to give up meat one day a week.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's a
1: big deal, just to give up one day meat one
2: day a week, and yet that's and it's a significant thing to do as well in terms of the environmental footprint of of meat. One of those,
1: and, and
2: well, and the, the, import, the other important piece of, of having someone like him come in—a guy who had, uh, you know, once described Walmart as a new breed of toxin—you know, now all of a sudden he's teaching their employees how to be green. Walmart invited in a whole se- a, 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 the, the uh, urging of Jibbs Ellison's company, Blue Sky Sustainability, uh, uh, to bring in their critics and to listen to them. Instead of this, this ultra touchy defensive posture that the company has always exhibited about critics, bring them in. They have the expertise, uh, to do things that you don't. Why would, and they'll give you their advice and their expertise for free, because they're anxious for you to change. Uh, bring them in. So they, so they, they call it the Bentonville bubble, how this you know, insular company protects itself from outside influence. And instead, so you have the former president of the Sierra Club, you have the NRDC coming, uh, uh, meeting to talk about compact, uh, compact fluorescent bulbs. You have people from Greenpeace talking about seafood. You know. Some of them said, well, come, just don't tell anybody. You know, cause it, was, it wasn't Walmart keeping it as the secret. It was the environmentalists wanting to, to you know, avoid co- that controversy. But um, they actually worked closely with these um, uh, environmental groups to develop more sustainable protein and they, and they put them on teams with Walmart employees, with academics, with environmentalists, and actually for the first time in the existence of this company welcomed the, that outside info, and that was critical as well.
1: And some of the environmental groups also took uh, some critiques from from collaborating uh, with them. All right, And still do, for sure. Waiting for the first brave question. Please, yes.
0: Hi, my name is Catherine Covington, and I work at RSF Social Finance. And I just had a question, and you referenced this, and you were talking about the solar panels and how that would be a great idea, but the cost savings would be spread out over time. So that prompted, in my mind, a question about what you think the future of benefit corporations are, where they're not only accountable to their stakeholders for financial returns, but also social and environmental, like the idea of triple bottom line companies, like people – um, profit and planet. Mm-hmm. If you have an opinion on that, and what the future of those types of corporations are, where their bylaws can be rewritten to incorporate all three and not just financial returns.
2: I, I think the the key has been not, has, to making it work has been to to eliminate those distinctions that that you know that it's a separate thing, planet, people, and and, and profit. Um, that's been the obstacle, I think, and. This whole idea of a triple, the triple win, um, is almost an impediment at times. If it, the win for the planet is the win for, for profit, and so um, I think the future, I, I think th- that future is going to become a necessity. Um, the, uh, solar, you asked, the, you, you prefaced your question about solar energy. Um, they are doing some some solar projects here in California because the law, the, because AB 32, re- basically is requiring them to do it. So they're go- they had to be sued <laughs> to do that. So they're not perfect on the environmental uh, front, but um, you know the costs are eventually going to be such that it makes economic sense for companies to invest more heavily in that kind of renewable energy. Uh, right now they're buying renewable energy from from providers to, in order to. Um, uh, green up their, their power because I, I, I believe they are the largest consumer of electricity in the, in the country privately and outside of the military. Um, so in your
1: mind the consolidation uh, of those things, the people planet and profit ought to happen rather than breaking them out which further uh, continues the, the idea that they're in conflict. It's so the old way of it. thinking
2: about environmental concerns as cost and burden. And you know, as regulatory, and, and I guess the, the lesson I came away with, and that other other businesses that are looking at what Walmart has done and being influenced by, it is well, you know, we can do these things and 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 not view them as in conflict or as as a compromise between the profit taking and the uh, planet protecting.
1: But it is true that as long as there's externalities and people can dump their carbon in the atmosphere for free and dump their sewage in the ocean for free, that there's an incentive to to dump those externalities because you don't pay any cost, right? So let's go to the next audience question. Thank you for joining us tonight. I wanted to know, based on your very detailed study of Walmart, you mentioned when Al Gore came in and actually spoke there how strong the reaction from the workforce was and similar things. And that companies of this scale tend to only change when they find it to be their competitive advantage. Are these companies now increasingly feeling pressure, not only from the public, but also internally from their workforces, to compete on how sustainable or how they push these issues?
2: Uh, well, that's, I mean, it's such a big uh, arena that I don't know that I can generalize on that. But um, I think... Not too many years ago, the idea of competing on sustainability would have been this sort of radical, far-out concept. Uh, I don't think it is anymore. It it seems to be making more sense to to think of it as uh, a way to gain competitive advantage. And and that's a very healthy – I mean, I think the magic of the marketplace is is often overstated. But in this case – uh, I think there is a little bit of magic to it. Um, not, not, certainly it's not universal, but it's a growing trend. And some, there, there's some real outliers And this. One of the things that's gaining a little bit of traction, well, two things that are gaining traction. One of them is the idea of product stewardship and companies that want uh, are, are willing to take responsibility for the fate, for the life cycle of their products. Um, some communities are looking at requiring Companies to do that, and, and it'll be interesting to watch how, how that plays out. Because is it possible to turn that to your advantage? Is taking responsibility for that material going to give you some value that you're that you're losing? And uh, it's certainly possible. And the other thing that's interesting is the begin very em, uh, embryonic look. Uh, that financial institutions and Wall Street and investment groups are giving to the depletion of natural capital, of, of e- another term for ecosystem services, and how uh, our current, continuing our current way of, of living and doing business will basically exhaust that natural capital in the next 40, less than 40 years. Um, does it make sense then when we consider? the value of an enterprise, of a company, uh, to base in that valuation in part on whether or not it is contributing to the exhaustion of our, our natural resources. Um, if a, Should a company be worth more if it is husbanding those resources more than an otherwise similar enterprise? Um, Goldman Sachs has created a water index to look at the narrower area of of water use and conservation. But it, it, those kinds of uh, very early initiatives are um, only going to pick up steam, I think, in the future.
1: One footnote is we've had CEOs here before who have said that sustainable initiatives certainly help in recruitment of young young uh, employees who want to work for a company that's at least perceived to be doing sustainable things. A number of em- CEOs have been here said, yeah, it definitely helps. Uh, attract talent that we want in the competitive sure. marketplace for labor. Let's have the next audience question, please. Good evening. I, um, I know tonight's uh, focus is on the environment, and I don't want to trivialize any of the improvements and benefits that you focused on. But you alluded earlier on in your talk to the many ways that um, Walmart has been maligned in the past for its business, uh, labor practices, the impact it's had on small towns and small businesses. And the question I have is, have you found that this recent – or relatively recent drive towards good, being a good citizen applies to the other areas, or do you feel, on the other hand, that this recent association with icons of the green movement—you know, be it Al Gore, you, you know, Stouffer, the Share Club, Seventh Generation, et cetera, kind of took the, the public pressure um, and the focus off some of these other
2: areas for Walmart?
1: So labor, gender issues, etc. Wh- wh- where are those?
2: Yeah. Um, well. I- we're waiting on the Supreme Court to decide one of those. Uh, I think uh, on gender, um, it's a mixed bag. You know, I I, I think that the the failings of uh, big business in general and Walmart in particular on on in different social areas have been well documented. And that really wasn't my uh, my purpose in to to retell that story in any kind of detail uh, in this book project, but. Um,
1: but has being green give, bought them some goodwill with people who might otherwise uh, be critical of the company? There's one point where you said, and it works the other way too, where people have begrudgingly said, "I hate to admit it, but I'm starting to like Walmart."
2: Yeah, well, I, it's a specific like. <laughs> it's uh, you know, I think they their the goodwill they've engendered on the sustainability front does not carry over into some of the other areas, into labor practice, and all. I think I think in some Areas they they've made some improvement, and others not so much. And um, communities that previously have opposed their uh, entry into the market have, you know, in in these uh, for economic reasons, I think are rethinking those positions. I don't think that has anything to do with sustainability, though. Um, uh, there's no good, there's no easy response to that. But I guess uh, I'd say. Uh, it ha- that goodwill hasn't carried over so much into other areas.
1: Edward Humes is author of Force of Nature. He's our guest here at Climate One. Let's have the next audience question, please.
0: Hi, my name is Kate Tremlett, and I'm a science teacher in the Green Academy at Berkeley High. And I was just curious um, if you're going to advise my students where to buy a bike. Would you say they should buy from the local co-op bike store that we have, or from Walmart?
2: Oh, I wouldn't deem to, uh, to to advise anyone to buy. There's no, you're not going to read, if you read my book, you're not going to see any message that urges you to shop at Walmart because it's going to save the planet and far from it. Um, Do you shop at Walmart? I uh, have on occasion. It's not my usual choice. Where did you uh, buy your kids' bikes? I bought uh, one of them at Target. And one of them at the local bike shop. So. And it was a, it was a, uh, strictly a decision on, uh, type, features, and price. As most, I think, Americans make the choice, and be honest about it. Uh, I did not look into the relative sustainability of each of those products when I, when I bought it. And I will shamefacedly admit that. Um, and I think that puts me right in the, the mainstream um, for that particular decision. There's other areas we, where we pay more attention to to environmental concerns, but I can't say that was one of them. Um, where should where should it, someone who cares about um, it, I guess it depends on what your priorities are. Do you want to do you want to emphasize supporting local businesses? That makes an easy choice uh, It's a particular. Yeah, but do you know how that item is sourced and whether its constituent parts are more sustainable than what Walmart is selling? Or are they uh, those parts coming from the same places? You'd have to dig d- deeper to really know.
1: Or another answer is don't buy a new one. Buy a used one on Craigslist. Well,
2: yeah. That's always a good choice.
1: Next question, please. Hi,
0: I'm Leah Lacy from Berkeley High School. I remember earlier you were talking about how oh, – Okay. I remember earlier when you were speaking about how Walmart was taking smaller steps towards being more efficient and how they emphasized how Walmart really isn't a green um, company, but you also talked about the trucks and the packaging and how that ended up saving over $2 million. Has Walmart taken any larger steps toward making it more efficient and more green?
2: Oh, oh yes, absolutely. Um, They have uh – well, as I said, one of the, one of the big uh, accomplishments was the reduction of, of, of waste to the landfill. Another area has been the overall lowering of their carbon footprint, um, which they accomplished in a variety of ways. I mean, you know, significant. I think uh, in five years it's been a 10% reduction overall. And some of the stores' designs that they've been using are 30% more energy efficient than the, than the original store designs. Um, they've made a lot of strides in Canada and have some some really kind of cool uh, systems in place there that they've been experimenting with. Um, Packaging is a real big deal, though, because of the um, potential for reducing fossil fuel use for the transportation of things. I mean, half of our waste in our trash cans is, is packaging. Uh, that's one of the reasons why our personal waste footprints have have gone through the roof since the 1960s. I think it's tripled since then. Uh, so when you can reduce packaging, it has a, it has a mul- multiple layers of of positive impacts on the environment and uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So their goal overall is 5% reduction in packaging, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's it's three and a half billion dollars worth of um, Reduction, um, another big accomplishment. They've been champions of, of compact fluorescent bulbs. You know, and um, you, know, you hear a, there's a lot of noise coming from Washington about you know, bring keep the Edison bulb and and and, and cancel this this uh, move terrible mandate. Yes. A terrible mandate uh, that has so many loopholes in it. But uh, they early on they embraced uh, trying to popularize CFLs, and they have sold. I think now it's almost a half a billion of these bulbs. It's just four for every household in America. Um, and, the, and the greenhouse gas savings from using those bulbs over the Edison bulb. Edison, by the way, would have been the first person who wanted to use something new and different and better. Um, he, uh, I believe the savings are something on the order of $15 billion Tons of greenhouse gas. I mean, it was something absurdly huge over the lifetime of the Over the lifetime of the bulbs. Yeah.
1: Of course, now we have LEDs, which are even better and don't have the mercury problems of. of
2: so when of the costs fuels. come down, and it'll be the next yeah. generation of, of but um, as as an incremental step, again, a lot of sustainability is taking these incremental steps towards towards a better outcome. How can Walmart be completely sustainable? It would not be recognizable as as Walmart anymore. It would it wouldn't be the low price leader. It would be the you know the sell things that last 40 years leader. You know I I have I have tools, craftsmen tools that were my dad's that are 40 years old. Uh, And somewhere along the line we stop demanding those kinds of products. Maybe and companies say, well, what's the value in selling something that lasts an electric drill that lasts for 40 years? Well, you know I'm, I'm attached to that drill. And and there may be a future where Walmart or whatever takes its place. Uh, is the company that provides that kind of good or service again. And and because that's what's going to make sense in a future of much more restricted resources and, and, and perhaps desire to spend and buy things.
1: Uh, We're so. discussing sustainability at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Let's have our next audience question, please.
0: Hi there. My name is Colleen Henry, and I'm a social worker. Um, what I hear you saying is, well, there might be some – Environmental consciousness on the part of Walmart, or to do good, um, but most of this is about the bottom line. That it, it, it's, it makes economic sense for them to be environmentally friendly, and perhaps they're saving some of, they're keeping some of the market share by bringing in organic products and whatnot. And so, I guess I'm wondering, um, with some of these other problems that Walmart has, like um, pay for domestic employees and treatment of domestic employees, are there any other initiatives that you see happening at Walmart? I know recently they talked about. Um, providing uh, call it online education to their employees. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if, the, if this was part of an initiative to invest in their workforce, and that's making economic sense for them as well, or increasing wages for their employees makes economic sense in some way. So are there movements like that happening, and is there evidence that shows investment in their employees will increase their bottom line?
2: Well, it's a good question. I can't answer the, whether there's evidence for that particular program, but I, I, they are talking about sort of the idea of sustainability writ large, where it becomes a more broader concept that influences some of the things they're doing. I don't know if you there was a heard there was an announcement a couple of months ago in which Walmart and Uh, Michelle Obama's uh, organization to combat childhood obesity uh, are partnering to try and make the the processed food that Walmart sells and that other, you know, supermarkets sell healthier. Less salt. Um, Yeah. Fewer calories. uh, 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 That's not, uh, to me, that's not the most impressive thing because, you know, it's still going to be processed food, but Again, an incremental improvement. They're, they're, they're sort of viewing that as a kind of sustainability, too. Um, the local – we were talking earlier about the effort to bring more locally produced produce to, into Walmart stores. Well, what they're doing is trying to compete with Whole Foods. But the impact of that is that local growers uh, have a new market to uh, sell their – Locally, um, and to do so um, without all the layers of middlemen that uh, you know uh, reduce their earnings. So that's that's also part of this this, this larger idea of sustainability. So uh, there's economic incentives for for a retailer to do that, but the, but it's also uh, providing a, a social benefit.
1: They want to basically compete with Whole Foods and drive them into a corner where, because they want to make sustainable food or organic food the same price as traditional food. Well, they, what they
2: talk food. about is we're democratizing sustainability. You know, it's Which is a not every putting Whole Foods out of business. Yeah, but, well,
1: yeah. uh, or at least making this, It's been,
2: for sure, a part of it. But um, uh, From an environmental standpoint, when you can lower the amount of miles food has to move to get from the field to your table, that's a good thing. Um, So uh, whoever is doing it, that, that carries an environmental plus.
1: Let's have the next audience question, please.
0: Okay, so you've been talking about how Walmart's doing it for the money. And it's like if they're bettering the environment, does it really matter if they're doing it for the money as long as the environment is being improved?
1: Does, does motivation matter?
2: Well, I think it, it does matter, but not in the sense that we should, you know, dismiss it because there's a pecuniary motive. On the, on the contrary, again, it, you know, we look at where we are. Let, let's take a moment and look at a little history of environmentalism in America. You know, I was I was born on Earth Day, before it was Earth Day, and I remember the first Earth Day, and there was 20 million people engaged in Observing Earth Day, and this was at a time when the bald eagle, the symbol of our country, was on the verge of extinction, and there was no Endangered Species Act, and there was no uh, significant uh, legislation to protect clean air and water, and people were upset about it and took action. And you know, you know, you may have heard that the Endangered Species Act is a liberal plot, but when it was Passed, it was passed unanimously by the U.S. Senate and signed by that notorious liberal uh, Richard Nixon, and uh, uh, and he celebrated it as our great environmental awakening. Those that was, you know, the 1970s, and we are not living in those times. And that epic legislation that protected our environment would not pass today. We would not have it, uh, and our national forests would be, you know, the weeds between the cracks in the sidewalk now, and. This is a new reality, and when you have large businesses like a Walmart or like Procter and Gamble or PepsiCo or you name these companies with you know that trouble us in many ways, when they're saying that there is an economic support for being more sustainable, that's a bright spot in an otherwise really difficult picture, and. Uh, I I see, I mean, the reason I wanted to do this book is to talk about the fact that the the motives aren't pure and that that's a good thing. It's a good thing that uh, there is this impulse to take profit from protecting the planet because that's probably the only way it's going to happen. We have another audience question.
0: Um, I remember... Um, I remember you saying earlier about how companies would be required to list where their products came from and how they were made and stuff. Um, Right now we're doing a school project, and it's clear that the lives of products now are absolutely horrifying. And um, I was wondering, wouldn't customers choose not to buy as many products at all, and wouldn't that be bad for business, um, for Walmart and big companies or companies at all? Well,
2: that's a great question. And the, I believe the answer is that um, a majority, a vast majority of Americans would say in a poll that they want greener products and that's what they want and that they wish everything was better for the planet. But when they actually go and you know vote with their wallet and go out and spend money, they are not making their decisions based, by and large, on those kinds of considerations. So um, part of making this sustainability uh, project work right now is not having it depend upon customer choices, but sort of using it to govern business choices, um, because that's what makes make economic sense at the moment. Now, I think the bright spot is the, the notion that the next generation of consumers is, you know, based upon that question that we just heard, and a lot of other evidence may, in fact, be more uh, guided by those kinds of considerations when they decide whether or not to buy something. That's certainly my hope, and I can tell you that's what what uh, the uh, uh, the brain trust at Walmart believes that down the line this investment in green will pay dividends with the next generation of consumers and that they will be looking for that information that tag that tells them that bar code scanner that lets them see a, a youtube video of the cotton grower standing in his field that doesn't reek of pesticides and they will be guided by those considerations in, in, and demand that information right now not so much 20 years from now, we better hope. So, anyway.
1: Has Walmart backpedaled at all from any of these initiatives? Uh, you know, back to basics? Are they anywhere sort of back, backed off this green program? You said they doubled down in the, in the recession, but has there been... Yeah, rate? well, they
2: they, I th- they announced their earnings tomorrow, and so the stuff that I've been seeing um, suggests that they're increasing their um, space they're devoting to organics and doing some other things that uh, suggest that they are... Pushing forward, well, and certainly the rhetoric has 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 been that um, in a recession, sustainability makes more sense than ever. So, no um,
1: no backpedaling that you've seen. Uh,
2: no, no. I mean, there's there's things that they uh, tried and and discontinued because it wasn't working for them or people weren't interested. But you know, I've read this idea that uh, Walmart. Uh, supposedly, uh, well, not supposedly, they definitely are returning to an older format for their stores where they have more stuff for sale and it's piled high and it's kind of that chaotic. They were going for a leaner, more upscale look in the stores, and the consensus is that hasn't worked out so well for them. And the, the pundits uh, who are writing about this it said, see, all the sustainability was a big distraction. They're getting back to basics. But going back to some old formulas for how you put your stuff on the shelves has nothing to do with their that commitment to sustainability. I haven't seen any, any evidence to link that back to the future thing for the for their store format as as a retreat on sustainability. I think that's wrong.
1: We need to end it there. Our author uh, guest today is Ed Hume's Pulitzer prize winning writer and author of the book Force of Nature: The Unlikely Story of Walmart's Green Revolution. I'm Greg Dalton, thank you for coming and thank you listening to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club tonight. Thank you. Um.